Take your Bibles, please, and go with me. Join me in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you do not have sermon notes, they're in the bulletin. But otherwise, if you don't have them, then just raise your hand. The ushers have several in hand that they will give to you so you can follow along a little bit better. We're in Matthew chapter 6, and I would ask that you join me, please. And just follow along as I read Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to start with verse 5. When you pray, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into thy closet, and when you have shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask him, and after this manner therefore pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We are studying on the Lord's Prayer. And what got me thinking this week was, when I was a teenager, around 13, 14, there was this craze that was happening for mini bikes. And getting these little cycles that you could drive. And some people shouldn't have them. Okay, Some people didn't need them. Some they're just not healthy for. But... I got my own mini bike, and when I got my mini bike, and that's not me, don't think it. Um, when I got my mini bike, I used it as my means of transportation for a period of about a year, year and a half, and I thought I was cool stuff and really enjoyed the mini bike. Until one day, when I knew my mini bike needed to be have some repair done, I drained the oil and I left it in the garage so that the oil would drain, and I was had to do some errands or something, and I was tied up. And my brother Bob came, jumped on the mini bike, started it up, and took off with it, though it had no oil in it. Okay, it seized up in a matter of about 30 yards or so. It seized up, and I no longer had my mini bike, and I couldn't repair it, couldn't replace it. And I was bitter for the rest of my life, as you can tell, against my brother Bob. <laughs> but there's, a, there's an issue here that I want to just illustrate, and that is this. You know, those types of, of motors, they need oil. It's an essential, otherwise it's not going to work. Well, when I got 16, the day of my birthday, I got my license. I shouldn't have passed, but he was feeling sorry for me. And he gave me my license. And the first car I bought was um, a Rambler like this from an undertaker. And I paid all of $50 for this car. I loved it. I loved it. One day I'm going down the road and I'm on this dirt road and there's nobody else on the road with me, but I'm driving and all of a sudden a tire passed me. Okay. (laughs) It was my tire from my Rambler that's passing me going down the road. Another of those life lessons, okay, there are essentials like oil inside of a motor, tires on a car are essential to keep on moving. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 is speaking about essentials that sometimes people let get away from them or they forget about and they don't refuel. He's talking in this text about a lot of things, but the one that we just read, he's talking about prayer. 
And he's saying in this text that we need to make the oil of our life prayer. We need to have balance. We need to have prayer. Otherwise, we're not going to be moving forward. And so he talks a lot about prayer. And we're talking about that over the next few weeks about the Lord's Prayer and some of the things that he taught about it. And what stands out right away from what he said and what we read already is he expects his followers to pray, those who call themselves Christians. In fact, he doesn't command it in verse 5, nor in verse 6. He assumes it when you pray. When you pray. Did you see how the verses start? He's assuming that you are going to be involved in prayer. Well, then he does command it. Later on, he says, okay, after this manner, therefore pray. And there's the command. There's the imperative. Okay, that you are to be praying. And then he makes it clear that we're supposed to pray repeatedly. Therefore, after this manner, pray over and over and over again. Regularly, give us this day our daily bread. It's supposed to be a part of our everyday life. But we're all supposed to pray effectively in a way that God will hear and God will answer and he will supply and he will reward us. Now, our question that we have is, how can I become more effective in my prayer life? How can I become more impacting in my prayer life? Well, Jesus gives practical instructions to all of us, any of us, every one of us, male, female, rich, poor, okay, whether you've been saved a long time or just a baby Christian, it makes no difference. He says, here's what you should do as a formula for how to pray more effectively. And he gives them some very, very important truths. Now, Before he gives them the pattern or the model of prayer, he warns them. He warns them that when it comes to prayer, be very, very careful because it can be corrupted. In verses 5, 6, 7, he's showing some of the corruption that often takes place with prayer. He's talking to people who prayed frequently and he's telling them, listen, a lot of times when you pray, you're not praying the right way. Why is that? He says, because sometimes when you pray, you're using canned prayers. You're using vain repetitions. You're using prayers that are memorized, but they don't come from the heart. And he says, you got to stop that. You can't just repeat a prayer for the sake of saying, well, I've done 10 of those prayers or two of those prayers, and that's effective. That's not effective praying. Effective praying is speaking from your heart one-on-one with God like you were conversing with another loved one. It's not giving memorized speech. It's giving what's in your mind and your heart. He warns as well that some people pray and they think because they pray long or loud, it's going to be effective. That's what he says when he says that they think that they're going to be heard for their much speaking. And so the longer, the louder they pray, the more impacting. He says that's not the way it works. Sometimes it can be short and quiet. Sometimes it can be more elaborate. But it's not based on some type of vocal inclinations that you make. It's rather from your heart once again. Sometimes people make the error of praying to impress people. It would be my fault. It would be my wrongdoing if I am standing here this morning leading in prayer, using lofty terms and giving the impression that this is the way I normally pray and I pray often. And yet, if this is the only time I pray, that's wrong. That's hypocritical. And he's saying that's the way some are praying. Some pray out loud in a restaurant or they pray in the, in the street corners or they pray before a class giving the impression that they're given to prayer, but they aren't. They're doing it to impress others. He says, that's wrong. 
Your prayer is not to be an impression upon others. It is supposed to be communication and intimate conversation with God. Now, can it be in a public fashion that we should pray and pray in a proper fashion? True. No problem with that. But as long as you are consistent in praying and not doing it for show. There's another way that some have done wrong. Pure ritualism. They pray, and the Jews had a lot of that. They had prayers that were scheduled at certain times, and it was all religious ritual. They had to do it at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. They had a pause. They had to have this extended prayer time just for the ritual of meeting it at those moments. And he says, no, that's not effective praying. And he warns against it. Now, the point is this, and this is the scary part for you and me. The scary part is that even involved in the most intimate of of activities, the most spiritual of activities, getting alone with God, speaking to God, we can do it in a way that offends him. We can corrupt the most spiritual activity that we get involved in praying. We've got to be very, very careful. Now, I'm going to add a couple other mistakes, errors that we often make. Sometimes when it comes to prayer, there are those who make the mistake of praying only in a critical moment. That this isn't, there, there's not communication of God, but only when the tire starts passing you on the road, then we pray. Only when somebody has done you wrong and they've not put the oil in your mini bike, then we pray against them. No, no, no. Our prayer life isn't supposed to be that God is the salt and pepper shaker we only use once in a while in a crisis moment to, spa, to spice up our life. Rather, it's supposed to be on a regular basis that we're in communication with God. I think another thing, is another area that we often make a mistake is we think prayer is just getting what we want. Okay, Now, I'm, I know I'm supposed to take my needs to the Father, but at the same time, it's not just about me getting, 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 getting. This isn't my Christmas list. This isn't my wish list. Praying is supposed to be a part of worship and intimate communication. We're going to talk about that more when we get further into the prayer. I think another error often made is this. And I think this happens too often. People pray after they've made decisions about a job, about expenses, about relationships, about college and career. Then they pray that God would approve their decision instead of seeking his direction. We need to be very, very careful. These things are very easy to fall into. But we need to pray in an effective fashion. Now, how do we do that? Okay. How do we do that? Oh, I think when we're being careful to pray, we do what Jesus said here. Number one is this. The number one element to effective prayer is what we talked about last week. Have a retreat with God. What I mean by that is this. Is that we have a place, a time, daily. Where we have set aside. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It doesn't have to be anything lengthy. But there's a time and a place that we have disciplined ourselves to say, this is my moment with you. And so he says, when you pray, enter into your closet. Find a private place. Find a private moment where you can spend time communicating with God. If it be 10 minutes or if it be an hour, that's up to you. But you're spending time alone with God. Oftentimes when we've done family seminars and family messages, we talk about couch time. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe some of you don't know. But what we frequently recommend is this is that couples, especially couples with small children, that your children learn that the most important relationship you have in your family dynamics is husband and wife. And so sometime during that day, if it's when you both get home, you have couch time. 
Okay? That is, you set aside time where it's just the two of you. The kids see that it's the two of you. But you have your five, ten minutes. And you guard it religiously. You don't let the kids interrupt. You don't let them take away this time. Unless there's an emergency, obviously. But it's your time that mom and dad have couch time. That it's them. That the kids see this so that they get a security. That they understand that you two are working. That you are a team. But that most importantly, you're getting along. And that you two have to have that time. And your kids will survive for a few minutes within eyesight, within, within the parameters that you've set. But you need, in the survival of your marriage, you need couch time. You need that time where you two get alone on a daily basis and can have just a few minutes where you can share, you can talk, you can unload on each other. You can, you can just build up each other. A few minutes. Every day, couch time. Well, let me suggest that you, every one of us, needs to have couch time with God every day. A time to unload, a time to be refreshed, a time to, to adore, a time to be, re, to be adored by Him. But a time where you build that relationship better and bigger every single day. You need a retreat. Now, that was last week's. Let's build on today. Okay? What do you need? Number two, you need a relationship. The relationship aspect probably is primary, but in the course of what we're going through, let's jump down to verse 9 and take it in the order of what he says. After this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father which art in heaven. That phrase, Our Father, indicates very clearly that there's a relationship that's established. That's what you need to have effective prayer. You need to have a father-child relationship with God Almighty. Who can pray that way? Well, there are folk who would say, And there are preachers who have preached. And some of us have sat in churches that have done this. They have said this on a regular basis. They have said that everyone is God's child. That everyone is part of God's family. That concept in theology is the universal fatherhood of God. That is the the teaching that develops this. That every person who is alive walking on planet earth is a child of God. That means everyone are brothers and sisters. You find it in our hymn book. There are some hymns that talk about the brother of man, that everyone is part of this same universal family, that everyone is a part of God's family, and the conclusion is most everyone will end up in heaven one day just because they're part of God's family. Is this a truth or is it a falsehood? Is God the father of all people or isn't he? Which one is it? Hmm. I say there's a little bit of truth to both. Okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. In this sense, when we say that God is the creator, father of everything, that is a biblical truism. Okay, we can jump all the way back to Malachi, where he says, Have not we all one father, that is one beginning, one beginner, one who has started everything? Has not God, has one God created everyone? The answer is yes. In fact, Paul developed this when he's on Mars Hill and he's preaching. He said, God made the world and all things therein that they should seek the Lord for we all are his offspring. So in the sense that God is the creator, father creator of everything, there is a truism. It's a small truism. Okay, that God is father of all in that sense. But when we talk about, is he the spiritual father of everyone? Is everyone a part of his family spiritually like that father-child relationship? That's a huge false 
Okay, this idea that there's a universal spiritual relationship that everyone has automatically, innately with God Almighty, that is not true biblically. In fact, let's just examine a little bit. The Bible makes it clear that there are two families spiritually within the human race. That you belong either to this family or to that family. If we were to take the New Testament and expand it a little bit further, we would find that God basically puts everybody into two groups. One group would be called the children of darkness. The other group is called the children of light. There are multiple passages that develop this, that talk about in the New Testament, but they talk that you are either one or you are the other. You are either the child of darkness or you are the child of light. He talks in Ephesians, for you were sometimes in the past writing to the believers at the church of Ephesus in the past you were at sometimes in darkness but now you are the light of the Lord walk as the children of the light let's expand this a little bit further okay there is another grouping that is making it a parallel children of darkness children of light or as Jesus says children of the devil children of God And Jesus makes it very clear that these two families, the children of the devil or children of darkness, are on an opposite from the children of light, or that is the children of God. He mentions this on several occasions. When he is giving a a parable about the different seeds that are in the ground, he says the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the evil one. And so you are either a child of God, a child of the kingdom, or you are a child belonging to the family of Satan. In fact, we go a little bit further. And in 1 John, that epistle, John makes it clear. He says, in this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. You are either in one family or the other. You are in darkness and a family of the devil, or you are spiritually in light and in the family of God. And so in that sense, not everyone is a child of God spiritually. The large amount of people who are in darkness, who are the children of the devil, in which, God, to tell you honestly, I was a part of that family at one time. So were you. We were all born into that spiritual family. And as a result, we were separated from God the Father. To become part of his family, we had to have an experience. We had to become his child. In John 1, John writes and he says, As many as believed on him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. It wasn't, it wasn't when you were born that you were automatically a child of God. It wasn't when, when you were an infant and so cute and so cuddly and cooing that you were automatically become a, children of God, a child of God. There had to come a point in your life when you believed. And when you came to a point of belief... Then you became a child of God. Then you become part of his family. How does that work? How does that happen? How does somebody become that? Well, this passage goes a little bit further. He says, as many as believed on him, to them gave he power to become something that they weren't. In the past, they were children of darkness. But now, when they, be, when they believe, they become a child or the son of God, even to them that believe on his name. Not on a church. Not on baptism, not on confirmation, 
Not on church membership, not on dressing a certain way or living in a certain country. He says that the way we become a child of God's family, and you have to become it, it's not natural. There has to be a moment in your life where you become part of God's family, and it's a moment when you believe on Him. That is, Jesus Christ, which were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, but their birth took place by a work of God. In fact, John develops this further. He says in John 7, or John 3, verses 3 and 7, he says, you must be born again. And he's using the illustration from common life, that you and I were birthed into our physical family. And it wasn't us that caused that birthing. It was the laboring. It was the work. It was the painting of our mothers that gave us this life. In the same way spiritually, we have to be birthed into God's family. A spiritual birth. That's why born again. So that it comes sometime in your life where God does the work. God does the, the painting. God does the delivery and makes you into his family, one of his children. That's when you become a child of God. He says, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is critical for every single one of us to have this at one, once in a lifetime experience. A spiritual birth. A spiritual moment, a moment where spiritually we become part of God's family. There's a moment for that. When is your moment? When did you come to a place of belief that you no longer believed in or trusted in your own self? Your own good works. Because you don't get born of this, of, uh, into God's family of the will of man. When is it that you said, I no longer rely upon my good deeds, my going to church, my saying prayers, my giving money, my being kind, my being charitable. When did you say, I no longer rely upon my baptism or my church affiliation or my mother or my father or my children or I no longer rely upon somebody else in my family, but I rely totally and solely upon him. I'm not relying on me. I'm not relying on someone else other than Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I need to believe on him and him alone to get me into heaven. And ask him to forgive me of that sin that I was born with. Of the sins that I have committed. Because I no longer want to stay in darkness. I no longer want to be in the family of the devil. Jesus birthed me into your family so that I can become a child of God. In the prayer, our father, that's what he's emphasizing. There are peoples who can pray this who have been birthed into God's family. Now the question that some of you may have, and it's a very legitimate question. How do I know whose family I'm in? Are there any kind of tests that can be done? Is there a paternity test that can be made? Can there be, is there some type of spiritual DNA that shows whether or not I'm in God's family? Now in 2 Peter chapter 1, it talks about that when we are birthed into his family, we get a share of, we get a portion put into us of what he calls a divine nature. That is, the spirit lives within us. Physically. 
lives within our bodies and we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is there some spiritual DNA that can be tested that, that helps me to understand I show that I am a God's child? Well, John writes and he says, I want you to know this. I want every one of you to know this. That's why I'm writing in the scriptures, he says. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It is not a hope so. It is not a maybe or a guess. Frequently we talk to people. Frequently we say, well, if you were to die, do you know if you'd go, in, go to heaven? And people's response regularly is, well, I hope so. I want to. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. You can know for sure that you are going to be in heaven as, as confidently as you know you're sitting right here, right now, in this place. You can know that. Why? Because of the test that God gives in 1 John. He gives you four different chromosome tests, DNA tests. He says, okay, you want to know if you're my child and you're not a child of the devil? I'm going to give you some pointed tests. He gives one of them. He says, do you have a desire to obey me? He makes the comment, hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commands. He that says, I know him, but doesn't want to do the commands of God, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. You've got a command to forgive. You've got a command to be baptized. You've got a command to, to train up your children. You've got a command to love and to work at your marriage. You've got a command to raise up your children. You've got a command to respect and obey your parents. You've got a command to work hard, to labor hard. You've got a command to pray. You've got a command to read scripture. You've got all kinds of commands. Do you desire to do that? Is there in your life, not perfection, but a persistence of following the commands of God? He says, that's a test. That shows whether or not you have the Spirit of God living within you. Because if you know a command and you refuse to do it, if you're God's child, you're going to have conviction. You're going to have the Spirit of God pounding on your head and your heart to say, you need to do this. You need to make this thing right. You need to forgive. You need to train. You need to love. You need to... And he gives you all these commands. There is a second test. That test is you stay away from worldly things. If, he says, that you know, the love of the world, he says, is neither, we're, we're supposed to love not the world, neither the things that are, that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And God says, this is a test. This is a DNA, spiritual DNA. What do you live like? What do you look like? What do you act like? What do you enjoy? What about your entertainments? What about your speech? Does it sound like Christ or does it sound like the world that's in darkness? You want a little bit more about that world in darkness? Read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. He describes that world in darkness and what it talks like and what its entertainment is about. There's a third test given in this book. God's children do not want to continue in sin. He says, whosoever is born of God does not continually commit sin. For his seed, the spirit, remains in him. He cannot continually live in sin over and over because he is born of, the, uh, born of God. If you are truly born again, and if you do sin, and by the way, we do sin. We're not saying perfection. We're saying persistence. Because the Bible, the same book that is written to us uh, by this author says, if any man confesses his sin, okay, he's talking to us believers, if we confess our sins, we are not perfect, we still sin. If you're born again, you still struggle with sin. But the big difference is, do you struggle with it? 
Or is it easy? Does it bother you? Can you, can you cuss and curse and it makes, it makes no conviction in your heart? You're not born again. Does it bother you if you lie? If you cheat? If you take something that doesn't... If you gossip, does it bother you? If you're truly born again, the Spirit of God is convicting you and bugging you and you want to change. Now, you still may battle with changing. Paul writes and he says, the things that I would, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I still do. There's still that battle. But the issue is, is there a battle? Is there a growing pattern in your life? Are you becoming purer and purer in your life? That's a spiritual DNA test. There's one more test that he gives in 1 John. We know that we have passed from death unto life if we love the brethren. Do you like Christian fellowship or do you dodge it? Does it, does it thrill you to get together with other saints or does it convict you? Does it bother you? Do you want to come up with the excuses to avoid? Do you have animosity? Do you harbor anger? He says, if you love the brethren, that's a display that you have God's spirit within you. There's so much more to develop, but here's the point. The point is that you and I can come to God in prayer, our Father, if and only if we have a relationship with him, that we are a part of his family. If you have never become a part of God's family, you need to be born again. That doesn't happen by joining a church. It doesn't happen by getting baptized. It doesn't happen by having some type of ecstatic experience where all of a sudden you might flop on the ground and pass out or speak in some unknown languages. It happens by accepting Christ as your Savior, believing that He and He alone can provide forgiveness of sins because He died on the cross to give you that forgiveness. And He offers you a free gift, and He says, Whosoever shall call upon my name shall be saved. You need to call upon Him. You need to repent of your sins, ask Him to give you total, complete forgiveness, and He says He will give it to you and birth you into God's family, put the Holy Spirit in your life, and you have that experience of born again. You are now part of God's family. You can approach God and say, Our Father. Now, let's do a talk about what he says. Our Father. The word is Abba. Our Abba. It's Aramaic. The Greek is Pater. But here he's using an Aramaic term. The Aramaic term that he uses there, Abba, has the idea of, probably in our language, the better way of putting it, isn't Father. That's more, that's more rigid and a little bit more um, austere. The word he uses is Dad. Pops. Papa. It is that more familial term. That idea of saying, okay, a familiar term in the family, the idea of saying somebody that very close. Now, let me make observations. Jesus used this term an awful lot. This is the way Jesus prayed. Over 70 times he says, Abba, when he's in praying. And when he's praying, he is implying that he and God have a very intimate, very close, very, very clear, familiar relationship. There's only one time in Jesus' life that he doesn't use this. Do you remember when it is? It's on the cross, exactly. And what does he say when he talks to God? My, my God, my God, why? Yeah, that's the only time. Why is that? Because at that moment, he is what? He's separated from the Father. 
He's experiencing the sin penalty. He has become sin for us. He's taken your lying, your cheating, your anger, you know, my dishonesty, my gossip, my, my bitter spirit. He's dying for all of those sins and therefore he's separated from God for that point in time. And so he cries out, my God, my God. But when it's all over, he says, Abba, into thy hands. Yeah, it's restored. Okay, and so Jesus uses that term, and that's the same term that he says you and I can use, which implies we can have an intimate fellowship with God, and we can have this relationship. Now, this is really unusual, okay, not to bore you, but to give you information. When they are writing about this and giving it to people in Bible days, this was, this was revolutionary. It doesn't hit us as much as it hits them. In Bible days, there was teachings that were being propagated, that were talked about in the Roman world, the Greek world, the Jews were being affected by it as well. There was different philosophies, but they became theologies. There are different philosophies, and one of them came from the Stoics. The Stoics basically said the greatest attribute of a god was apathia. We get apathy from it. They said that gods, if they could love, then they could experience the opposite as well. They could be hurt. If they could feel joy, they could feel sadness. And as a result, the gods shouldn't be influenced by you and me to feel happiness or sadness. So therefore, the gods became very indifferent. They became emotionless. They, they withdrew. But, uh, okay. Let me give you modern-day illustration of Stoic. That's it. Okay? They're saying their gods were Vulcans. Okay? That they didn't have emotion. And now this, was, this theology was being propagated a lot. So when Jesus is speaking, when Paul is speaking, and in Galatians, Paul is writing and says, we can call our Father, Abba, Father. When he says, when he writes that, he's writing to people who think gods are distant. Gods have, don't want anything to do with the people in the sense that they don't want interaction because they don't want have that emotional tie to people. There was another group, the opposite group that were called the Epicureans. This group had a different point of view. They said that the highest attribute was calmness, and people do not bring calmness into life. Basically, they said the gods created the world, they started it, and let it go, and people are on their own. This developed into the 1700s and into the 1800s into what's called deism. It is what is very popular today called humanism. That the highest, the highest good is developing ourselves to our fullest ability because we are on our own. And so that whole thought that came that the gods are distant emotionally or distance, distant geographically or involved with our life. Jesus is speaking to crowds of people. And he is saying to them, listen, when you pray, understand your God is not distant. He is like Papa. He is like Abba. You and him can be tight. You can be really close and intimate. He is not removed. He is not remote. He is one who wants to be involved. And by the way, our Father indicates this isn't just for a certain group. It isn't just for the preachers. And again, people develop theology. It says only the clergy this sacerdotalism idea. Only the clergy can have a closeness with God. That is a lie out of the pit of hell. You can have a closeness to God. You can be intimate with Him. You can be talking to Him. The Almighty God in heaven, the Father in heaven, you can be calling Him Abba. And He cares for you like an like a exemplary Father. He's involved in your life. He knows your needs. He knows the very hair on your head. He knows all about you. He's involved. He's intimate. You can have that relationship with Him. This God who is powerful 
is so passionate. There's a passage you got to look up and read later on. It's Psalm 68. It is phenomenal. You read the psalm and it keeps on talking about his power. It talks about how he shook the earth. It talks about how he controls the myriad of angels. It talks about he commanding strength and how he's in charge of all the storms and the clouds and he has his chariots of thousands. It's talking all about the power of God, the power of God. And you stand there as you read it, sit there as you read it, and you're overwhelmed by this God is amazing. He is so awesome and so powerful. And then it says this, and he is the father to the fatherless. He cares for the littlest ones. He is compassionate. Well, he cares for you. He is compassionate towards you. Jesus wants us to remember when we pray every day, pray in this vein, whatever words you use, you pray, my Father in heaven, my Abba, you care for me. You are concerned about me because I'm your child. I have a relationship with you. You want to be intimate. And so when we pray, we're to remind ourselves of God's great compassion, the, the, the position that we possess by his grace that we are princes, princesses, that we are heirs and brothers with Jesus Christ, that we are able to talk to the most majestic being in all of creation, and though we are humbled by his greatness, we can still call him Abba. What an amazing thought. There are so many benefits that come with an Abba Father. He lists them. You see, in the Old Testament and New Testament, the Jews heard about this, but they got away from it. And some of the prophets reminded them that God wasn't just God, creator, authority. He was your father. And Jesus develops that, and so do the apostles, to say, listen, with God being your Abba, your father, there are some real benefits you have. The benefit of no longer having to fear. You know how little kids are? You have them in your home, whether it be yours or grandkids. You know, and they get upset because of something in the room in the middle of the night. They call, you go in there, and they get a calmness because you are there. Because you as Abba or Mama, you as the parent, you're providing that comfort. Well, God provides that. We have no reason to fear. We, with an Abba Father... We have the confidence that he will meet our needs. That he says in this passage that God will reward, that he knows our needs. That he says in verse 8, before we speak, he is already taking stock as a good Abba of what you need. And he's planning and preparing it for it. You know what's amazing? That he not only provides our needs, but it says, our Father which art in heaven. That means his resources to meet your needs are infinite. Remember what he says in Matthew chapter 7? You can look, verses 7, 8, 9, right in that passage. Of Matthew 7, he says, Whatsoever you shall ask, it shall be given, knock, seek, find. He talks about that, and he says, Which one of you, as a father, if your child asked for bread, would you give him a stone? If he asked for a fish, you'd give him a serpent. He says, you wouldn't do that. You're a caring parent. Well, God, your father, is more caring to meet your needs, to provide for you. My benefit that I have with an Abba, he gives me guidance. My father, your father leads us. He, he guides us step by step, way by way. Our Abba doesn't want us to get lost. Our Abba doesn't want us to be confused. He gives us direction. Our Abba repeatedly gives us assurances of his love. Gives us reassurances of his forgiveness. 
After he talks about our sinfulness and being removed, he says, as a father pities his children, he removes our sin. This is the text that says, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins from us and buried them in the deepest sea and put up a sign, no, no, no fishing. You know, God is so, it doesn't say that part in the text, but it is, God is so phenomenal. He's an Abba. He is the best Abba. He cares for us. He never wants us to be without his companionship. He never wants us to be without his support. He's even better than the many of you good parents. When your kids are playing the sports games, you go there, you cheer for them. And that's a good thing to do. You want to be there as a support, as an encouragement. You want to spend time with them and around them. You want some moments to be away from them. We understand that too. But here as a good Abba, he's providing us. He says, I will never leave thee nor forsake us. One author of painting, I should put it, one painter, wanted to portray this. So, you know, back in history, they would hire painters, you know, then they would pay them, and these guys would do these marvelous paintings. Now, this isn't the one we're talking about. This one was done by Rembrandt. But in that time period, there was a painter that was hired to do, the master said, I want you to do the prodigal story, the prodigal son. And I want you to show, you know, how the prodigal came home and was accepted by the dad. And so the painter did this beautiful painting. And the master came, who had provided, and he's standing there, he's looking at it, and it's this huge painting, and he is marveling at it. It is so beautiful, it is so wonderful, and it is amazing. And then he stopped. He couldn't believe it. The painter had made such a glaring, stupid, silly mistake. There, towards the bottom of the painting where the father was standing, it was obvious that the father had a red shoe on and a blue shoe on. How could you make such a silly mistake as to have this man wear two different color shoes? The painter said, that's the best part of the painting. What do you mean it's the best part of the painting? Such a silly mistake. It drew my eyes to it. Other people's eyes are going to go to it. He says, but that's the beauty of it. The father wasn't concerned about fashion when he had to meet his son. He just grabbed what he had and hurried out the door because his son was more important than attire. What, a, what an apt picture of God our Father. That it is about us, Him loving us, that He moves in our direction when we call upon Him. He's the source of all wisdom, is Abba. Well, by the way, what show should come to mind? Father knows? Yeah, okay, our Father knows everything. Talk about a model. Having a model father, a model parent. By the way, those of you who want to know how to raise your kids, God gives you a perfect example by the way he deals with you. Discipline with compassion. Restrictions with trying to stretch you. He gives a model for everything. He gives a model of how you're supposed to treat your spouse. He gives a model how you treat your kids. He gives a model of how we're supposed to do business. He gives a model how we're supposed to witness. He even gives a model how we're supposed to pray. He models everything for us. He's Abba. He's amazing. David Simmons played for Dallas. This is back years ago, before my time, you know, in the 60s. Okay. David Simmons was a, was, a, was a college recruit drafted by the NFL. And uh, yet he talks about his experiences as a kid. He said, I had the worst childhood. His dad, he says, was, one, was the worst dad in the world. His dad was treating him rudely all along. 
He didn't understand why until years later that his father grew up in a home where his grandfather, his dad's dad, was a lumberjack who had a vicious temper and would beat his father regularly. In fact, his, dad, his granddad, his father's father, was angry one day that the pickup ran out of gas. How dare the pickup do that? So he took a sledgehammer and destroyed his own pickup because the pickup dared to run out of gas. So his father grew up in that environment, and David says, my father was cruel and brutal. Discipline was harsh, without compassion. He says, I remember my first Christmas when I was a little kid. My dad gave me a gift of a bicycle, but it was unassembled, totally unassembled. My dad said I had to stay up until I assembled the bike. He said, I worked on it all night. I couldn't get it together. I didn't have the skill set. And my dad's only comment to me in the morning is, I knew you were too stupid to do it. He said as he got a little bit older, he played football in high school. His comments are, he says, I didn't get butterflies before the games. I got butterflies after the game. Because after the game, my dad would take me home yell at me all the way home about what mistakes I made. He had them all written down. And before we could go to sleep, I'd have to stay in uniform and we would go hours in the backyard of rigorous drills to, to correct my mistakes. He said I got a college offer, got several of them when I graduated from high school, for scholarships to different schools. He said I picked the University of Georgia for one reason. It was the farthest school to get away from my dad. He says, I got drafted by the NFL, St. Louis Cardinals. I was the second round pick of the Cardinals that year. The first round pick was Joe Namath, who got traded over to New York Jets. But he said, I got I drafted second by that team. I was so excited. I called my dad, and I told my dad I got drafted in the second round. And my dad's only comment was, what's it like to feel like a loser being second? So he said, I grew up with that. But only when I came to a point where I got born again and realized that's not the God we serve. Our God is not cruel. Our God is not mean. Our God is Abba. He cares. He loves. He reassures. We who pray this prayer, who are invited to pray this prayer, should be reminding ourselves every day, our or my Abba. What he gives. By the way, let me add this. With benefits comes responsibilities. As well, not only does God give us all these benefits, but as our Abba, he expects us to obey him. He writes to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy, and he says, you need to obey the Lord. Is he not your father? We need to obey him because he is our loving, gracious father. He deserves our obedience. He wants our obedience. So what does it all mean to you and me here this morning? What it means is this. Number one. You and I can have a close relationship with God Almighty. A relationship that we can, we can start by being born again. A relationship that then is developed by having regular, intimate fellowship with Him on a daily basis called praying. And when we pray, we're to remind ourselves, He's Abba. What do we do? We need to experience this relationship. You need to be a part of His family. You need to be born again. You must be born again. Otherwise, you are the children of darkness. You are the child of the devil. You need to be brought into God's family. He is willing to birth you into it, to adopt you as his child, but he will not force you. He asks you, 
Do you want to receive my gift of spiritual life? I will birth you this day. You need to do that. 